0: Welcome back to the thing with feathers podcast. I'm Courtney Ellis. I am really excited to introduce our guest today. Frank Izagheri is the editor of the American Birding Association's Birding Magazine. This is the best day of my month when I go to my mailbox and I get the birding magazine. This year they gave us stickers for the bird of the year, which I was just unbelievably excited about. My husband's like, you're like a toddler. I'm like, yes, I am. He is also a PhD candidate at West Virginia University. He's writing a dissertation on the influence of Field Guides on Environmental Thinking. Frank, thank you for being here with us today.
1: Thank you, Courtney. Thank you for that lovely introduction, and it's an honor.
0: It's so good to have you. I I enjoy the magazine so much. Tell me about how you got involved with the magazine. Tell our listeners, who may have never picked up a copy, all about birding.
1: Yeah, how I got involved in the magazine. That's kind of an interesting journey. So... The other editor and the longtime editor of the magazine is from here in Pittsburgh. And because I live in Pittsburgh now, even though I'm not originally from here. And he lives in Colorado. He lives in Boulder. But he comes and he visits his family sometimes. And I was able to meet him. So I started a relationship with him. And eventually, I I pitched an article to the magazine. Um, and like I really, really researched it. Um, maybe some listeners will remember it. Oh gosh, I wonder what year that ran. Maybe like 2013. That sounds about right. Uh, it was about, I, I thought about what I, he might like and what was good for the magazine and something someone had never done. And I, I pitched an article to him and the, the article was about, um, it was about what names for birds get used in the most families of birds. So like some bird names like warbler and wren and tanager and there are various examples of that get used in like the common names get used in families that um are not closely related at all in different parts of the world. And so I thought that was kind of a neat like little research project that would be exciting for the magazine. And so I pitched that article and you know that was able to get in birding and then I pitched more articles and I wrote more for the magazine and eventually the longtime book reviews editor um whose name is Rick Wright uh he stepped down from his role and I had done a lot of reviews for Rick uh book reviews and then I was able to fill that role so I became like a department, like a column editor and then eventually I was you know Ted is still editing the magazine as well um, and we, and Michael Redder also edits a couple of special issues of the magazine, uh, per year, but Ted is pursuing some other projects now. So he's gone part-time. So I was able to like take half his job. Um, and that's been a really exciting opportunity for me. So that's that, you know, that was over the course of many years, um, that I was able to, to get to where I am. And I, I really like the job. I really like making the magazine and it makes me very happy when I hear someone like you say that it makes makes you happy to receive the magazine. That's what I go for. I want people to feel so excited when they see it in their mailbox um, or in some cases in their email inbox, if they receive the digital version. So that's, that's how I got where I am.
0: That's a great story. I love the journey, and I love how you kind of picked up the baton from Ted. He's still holding half the baton. He's sharing yeah. the baton. Yeah, right. <laughs> he does such wonderful work. And that is a really fascinating first article to pitch about the family names and how they get connected to those various birds. I find it interesting when there's a name for a bird on this side of the Atlantic and the other side of the Atlantic or in a different country that's a totally different kind of bird. that we just Right, right borrowed the name and we've decided, no, no, this is a Robin now. And we're like, well, but it's, it's not. Yeah. Robin
1: is another good one. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so I, I just thought that would be fun. I had never seen anything like that. Um, I, it took me a long time to research it. It didn't take me that long to write it, but it was like, I wanted to really get it right. Um, and so that was, it was kind of like, I was teaching at public school at that time. Um, high school, uh, And, uh, I had, I did it during the summer and I, it's kind of like, it's just one article for a magazine and it took me like most of my summer to do. I did that article. That's what I did that summer. And at that time I was like, man, I don't know. That was like not the most efficient use of time just for one article, but I don't know. It was an investment that, that kind of seems to have paid off for me. So I think I... On a rational level, was like, mm, I don't, mm, you're probably making a mistake here, Frank. But on some like deep, d- deep, um, sort of like felt way, I I knew it was like a good use of my time. So, and it was just fun to do anyway. I like, I, I took out, um, maybe this wasn't even the best methodology, but I I have the print version, the last print version of Clements, and I like really looked through the Clements index and I used some some online tools as well to like try to be really thorough I actually like forgot what name was the most used in different families now I should look that up it's changed because taxonomy has changed because that was a while ago that was like 10 years ago now so some some of those tallies are no longer I think wrens it was tied I think wrens was one maybe like 13 different families have a bird that's referred to as wren and then there was another one he was flycatcher. I can't remember. Warbler was up there, but it wasn't number one. Anyway. <laughs> yeah.
0: Is Clements your favorite field guide? Do you have a favorite? You're writing a dissertation on field guides.
1: Yeah. So well, Clements is like um, it's it's one of the four major global taxonomies. Uh, that's the one that eBird uses. Um, hmm. so uh I don't have like a taxonomy that I I I prefer more than others. Um I I always think it's kind of interesting to to learn like um what h- how they differ from each other the taxonomies and I'm not an expert on that I know there's a lot of people that know more about that than I do um, some are like a little more conservation oriented and so they might be more likely to, to like split a species um a little a little m- before others do and some are a little more conservative and keep species together for longer. Um, from a birder's perspective, and not necessarily from like a uh, literary critics perspective, because my my project is my dissertation project. I approach it like I, I bring all my birder knowledge with me about how birders and also other naturalists use other kinds of field guides that aren't necessarily about birds, because there are so many. I bring that stuff with me to my scholarship, but when I'm doing that project, it's not necessarily, I'm not necessarily, um, I'm not writing about it. I'm writing about it mostly as like a literary critic. I'm using um, critical tools to analyze those books and what, the way they influence environmental thinking, as I call it. Um, So some of the ones that are most, are my favorite are just ones that are very strange or unusual um there's field guides for for everything i I talk about this a lot in the dissertation it's in the introduction because then i have to get into more um depth uh in the in the the heart of the the project but like there are field guides for like houses and hot sauces and not to mention like almost every living kind of being has some field guide representation now there are field guides for mosses and lichens and organisms that are much more difficult to identify in the field than, than birds. Um, so I have so many favorites from a birder's perspective. I've always kind of been a nat, a nat, a nat geo guide. That's kind of like, just by coincidence, I, I kind of like, I don't even remember how I got my first nat geo. It literally might've been, I was in my, is in a Barnes and Nobles with my parents and I just saw it and asked for it. That might have been how I became a like a Nat Geo um, faithful. But Nat, Nat Geo is one of, widely uh, considered one of the best field guides. And but you know I, I have Sidley and I look at Sidley too, and I have many. You know I have a lot, a lot of field guides. So, <laughs> yeah.
0: I love that, and it's so easy to find that yellow spine of the Nat Geo. Like it's it's iconic. That yeah, it has, color. yeah, it
1: is. It is iconic, and it it's always nice to see it in the bookshelf too. Um and you know, find some excuse to pull it down.
0: For sure. I've found, uh, you know, I have young kids. You, you, you've you shared with me, you've got a, a young child. The wonder that kids can experience with those those beautiful, glossy
1: photos. My daughter's still a little young for that. But sometimes, like sometimes I have piles of magazine on my desk, unsurprisingly. And sometimes she'll like want to go through and look at them. But it's kind of funny because she is like most drawn to the advertisements. She just, like looks at <laughs> Because a lot of them have a really pretty bird. But related to what you were saying about the way your son reacts to field guides, part of what I think, part of the way field guides are influential and important and have changed the way or, you know, strongly directed the way people think about the outdoors is that you see the animal or whatever is depicted in the pages. And it sort of propels you outside. It makes you want to go outside and try to find that animal and organism. And even sometimes field guides depict, for instance, birds that look so similar to each other, but they're differentiated in the field. Sometimes they look basically identical. However, it's noted that They sound different and they are different. There are different species or there are different subspecies and that creates desire. And so that sort of like pushes people outside into the world. And that's one thing that many people like about field guides. It's sort of like, um, it's almost sort of like an antidote to um, a world where you're like sort of oftentimes find yourself drawn to staying inside, being comfortable, but field guides get us outside again um, so that's one of the ideas I sort of explore in my in my project.
0: That sounds fascinating. How, how far are you <laughs> from you. the finish line? Or is that not the question asked? My husband has a Ph.D. And I think that was his least favorite question <laughs> toward the end. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's no, I, I don't mind the question at all. Th- thank you for asking. Um, so I basically just have to finish the dissertation uh, so it's kind of like on my time and I am starting to sort of run out of time. I, you know, you time out eventually, as you probably know, um, at least in my program. Um, so I, I, I have a lot written, I have like enough raw material, but I just need to sort of, um, like I, I don't, I probably have like 200 pages it's long. It's like mm, somewhere between 115, fifty and two hundred fifty. but some of it is very raw and needs to be like connected. So it's, I, my committee, I have a nice committee. They're really good, especially my chair. They will go with me almost as fast as I am able to do, but it has been very hard with the new job. The job is great, but it also means that I have a job now. So, (laughs) and then, you know, of course I have my daughter and um, she's home with us, but with dissertation, as much as I like it, I need to be in a different mind frame. I can't be like, I kind of like can't be like that tired. There's also like, (laughs) you know, you have to have like the right level of caffeination.
0: (laughs) Yes, it's a different level of writing. I remember my husband and I, when he was finishing his dissertation, you know, I would say just do it after, you know, we put our son in bed. We only had one at the time. Do it after we put him to bed. And he was like, I I can't. Like my brain Mm -hmm. is done by that time of the day. And I never really
1: understood.
0: Understood that until I started doing some deeper writing of my own, and then I said, "Oh, like you, you need your best brain for this. It's like it's like you have to go to this subterranean place of thoughtfulness and interweaving, and you know, it it isn't just an article. It's it's a dissertation. You have to be able to think through it beginning to end, and all these pieces that you stitch together. And it really cuts in on your birding time, Frank. You got to finish it so you can get out outside more.
1: I know, I know, I know. I mostly there's like a little level of irony there right now, because I'm working so much and trying to make the magazine so good that I don't always go. I mean, I, I, I go out with my daughter a lot and we walk around the neighborhood. Um, and you know, we look at what's in our yard. We, our yard is pretty small, but we have a little yard and we have feeders and stuff. Um, so, um, you know, I know what birds are around in the neighborhood, but, um, I don't, go on the big birding trips anymore i really haven't done that in quite a while uh i was able to visit my parents in miami which is where i'm originally from over winter uh like winter like the winter break period even though you know i'm not on the academic schedule anymore um (laughs) and i was able to do some birding there but actually very little um and i got a lifer which was my first lifer in almost three years which was white wagtail which was really exciting um So, uh, yeah. So like, and like my, my main patch, which is, it's like a five minute drive from my house and it's like a 15 minute walk. There's a bridge that goes to it and the bridge is like closed now. So I can't drive to the patch. So I'm like kind of cut off from my patch. It's a nice little, it's a good little migrant trap here in the city.
0: Mm, Say more about that for our listeners who are new to birding. What's a migrant trap?
1: Yeah, so when migration is happening, um, especially in urbanized areas, uh, birds will sometimes, like, you know, if you're a bird and you're you know trying to get to your breeding grounds and you see, like, you're in a place where there's a lot of development and there's not a lot of trees and natural habitat, if there's a nice park, you they just go to the parks. They kind of get, like, sucked into the park. Um, and so... Um, that can be a really nice place to to see a high concentration of birds uh during migration. people call that migrant trap. Also, it can kind of be it can kind of apply to, for instance, there are some really famous birding destinations that are like like a little peninsula um right at the like at the edge of a of a lake. Like here, you know, Pittsburgh is is close. It's not on the Great Lakes, but it's like they're like two hours, three hours, you know, you can go to Erie and there's nice famous migrant traps like Presque Isle is the one that's closest to me, but McGee um, Marsh is, is also pretty close. And that that's like three, three and a half hours from here. Presque is like two hours. Um, and those are really famous migrant traps because the birds get sucked in there right before they try to cross um, the, uh, the lake. Um, and that's a really nice place to see a lot of migrants. Both of those places, and then you know, Point Pelee in, in Canada um, is another great. They cross the lake, and then they're in Point Pelee, and then all the Canadian birders are seeing <laughs> the same birds. Uh, so those are that. Those are really nice. Um, those, that's what a migrant trap is.
0: One of the things I so appreciate about Birding Magazine is the writing is excellent. And the science is excellent, but it's written mm. in a way that's very approachable. I'm I'm fairly new to birding. I've been doing this about three years and I never feel like I'm being talked down to, but I always learn something. And you you guys thread that needle so well. How do you decide what goes into a magazine? How do you make those choices? I'm sure you get pitched a ton of ideas.
1: Part of it is trusting the writers. You develop a relationship with the writers. Um, they get more experienced and... They are able to handle that. You get good people in the magazine, good, talented people or people who, um, you know, have a lot of uh, sometimes people have like a certain level of like raw talent that you can help them be able to contribute something well. That's when I use my own skills. Like, for for instance, part of what I was saying before with using skills that I developed in Ph.D. program uh, a lot of what I did in the program is teach. I taught a lot of courses. On, I taught a lot of English 101 and English 102. And before I went in the program, I I taught creative writing and I taught journalism. And so I used those. And you know, I've taught literary analysis. So I've used those skills to to help contributors. Um, be able to write for the magazine. And a lot of people don't need that. They n- already know what to do. They're very experienced. Some people have been writing for the magazine for many years, maybe sometimes more than 10 years. Um, and so a lot of it is just trust and and getting good, talented people, which is always, that's one of my favorite parts of the job. I love finding people, I love either working with really talented, experienced people who've sometimes have written for the magazine a lot and sometimes not so much, but they're, you know, have have had a great writing career already or finding people who are like, I think this person can be really, really good. Um, and, and starting a relationship with them so that they can contribute to the magazine. So that's one thing. Um, also I, I try to I always try to make sure the content comes back to birding. That's one thing that distinct for me. That's one thing that distinguishes bird. Cause there are other nice bird magazines. Um, but usually the different magazines have a little bit of different, um, like thematic inclination. Like some are can be a little bit more about conservation. Some can be a little bit more about science, um, And birding is about those things, too, because they are adjacent to what birding is. um, And there's overlap. But birding is about birding. (laughs) And that's part of what I love about birding and being the editor of birding is that birding is like lowercase birding is so much fun. Birding is so fun. It's such a fun activity. And it brings people... So much joy, and that's what's really cool about um the magazine is that I like to um have run articles that are about they if they're about birding then they're kind of about having fun you know it's like and that's so I always try to like so, so sometimes it's possible to uh, you know it, it you can have articles that become like much more technical or um you know, m- maybe more focused on like, I don't know, like, you know, you could have an article that's was more focused on like effective land management or something, things that are like more directly about conservation, but I always try to make sure things swing back to birding because that's, what's fun. And that's what members, what I think readers of the magazine expect. So that's another thing that I always try and keep in mind. And it's, it's just so great. It's so enjoyable for me um, because I just get to make sure people are are writing and reading about things about, about birding and bird, birding is just, it's just such a great activity. It's so fun. It's so accessible. Um, you can travel so far to do it and enjoy it. And you can also just do it right outside virtually at any time in any place.
0: Well, that intentionality really, I, I appreciate you, kind of elaborating upon what you're looking for because that is the feeling I get when I read the magazine is that at the end of the day birding is fun like the spark that first got me into it that spark is in every magazine and there there really is this turn toward you know it, it you you feature this wonderful diverse array of authors and different life experiences and different ages and different backgrounds and you cover birds in different countries but at the end of the day we're all birding because it brings us joy. And I love that. I love that connection. We are united in birds.
1: Yeah. Thank you. I mean, that's all really wonderful to hear. Um, part of what happens and needs to happen in birding is it's, it's like, it's about, uh, community. Um, and so there's like, you know, more local levels of community and there's like the ABA area to some extent is like a community. And you know, ABA members are a community in their way. It's also like a global community, as you were suggesting. So I, I always like to, to find those. I, I I really always I want readers of the magazine and ABA members to feel like they're a part of a community. And that's an a feeling that is important to get um in the magazine too. Um, and it happens very naturally, you know, you don't have to try that hard to do it. It just kind of happens naturally because birders feel a lot of camaraderie with each other. Um, so, and, you know, we have like the celebrations column is like more explicitly about that than other columns, but it shows up in other places too. Um, you know, um, like, uh, the executive director, Nikki Belmonte has her column, uh, which is, you know, we recently renamed that it's called primary thoughts now, which I, I think is a fun title. Um and a lot of times she'll write about that in in that column, um, so um, yeah. I just I, I love I I really want members to feel I want birders and especially ABA members to feel like the magazine is their magazine, um, so so that's something that's a real joy about about the position too.
0: I think a lot of folks in midlife. Find that they're in some sort of crisis because what's next? We've achieved what we wanted to, you know, vocationally mm-hmm. or academically, and what's next? And to discover this whole world that's been right outside my door that I knew nothing about mm-hmm. has been an incredible, incredible delight. So, um yeah, that's that's a little piece of my story. I would love to hear more about your story. Your you mentioned you enjoy talking about birding and wellness, and that you're a cancer survivor. Tell mm-hmm. us about mm-hmm. that.
1: <laughs> Yeah. So, okay, let's see. I am, how old am I now? I think I turned 37. <laughs> so I, <laughs> so. You don't look
0: a day over 36. <laughs> uh, thank you.
1: Thank you. <laughs> uh, so let's see. Yes, I have had cancer. I've been diagnosed with cancer three times. I was first diagnosed with colon Is the type of cancer I had in, in twenty. 12. I had mm-hmm. just turned 26 and I had surgery, but it was like stage one. So I didn't have any more treatment. And it was that's a that's kind of a big deal surgery. Um, but, uh, you know, I was a young guy and I recovered quickly and I just kind of tried to get back into my life. And then I had a recurrence in 2014, the cancer had spread to my liver. And so I, um, I had really aggressive chemotherapy and I had another big surgery and then more chemotherapy. And that, that was a very hard year. Um, and then that happened then, you know, it again, restarted my life. It was hard. It was really hard. It was in 2014. I mean, my wife and I were going to get married and we had to postpone the wedding until 2015, mm-hmm. um, because I was having all that treatment. Uh, and then, uh, it, then I, I started a PhD program and I got, got a recurrence again in the liver, Mm. um, in 2017. So that's been a a while now. And so I had more chemo, another big surgery, and it kind of got harder every time. Um, so that has been a big part of my life. Um, and, uh, so birds are great because (laughs) even when I was sick, I was able to, sometimes, I mean, it was so, you, you know, I was always able to go out and sort of like, it's when you're on that kind of chemo that I had, that stuff just really messes you up. You get blasted. Even I was like a young guy, you know? And so I'm able to, they use the word tolerate. I was able to tolerate (laughs) that, um, that stuff a a little better than, you know, maybe people who, people who have that kind of cancer are usually older, even though it's increasing in young people, Um, and, um, and it's, it's a little bit easier to take that. That's it's toxic. It's a little bit easier to take that when you're a younger guy, but even so it would like blast me, you know, I would be so down for a few days. And, but, you know, even then I was able to go outside and do like a little bit of birding and, it was always nice to be able to have that there. I wasn't able to do the kind of like, like hardcore birding, which I also enjoyed there. I mean, there have been times when I would like, there have been times in my life when um, a lot of people who like chase birds and go for really good birds, um, they kind of like are always doing that. For me, it has been a little different. I've had some times when I like, I will really go for the really rare birds um, that you might not get a chance to see again um, n- near you uh, in like, even in your life, I've gotten a few code Five ber- birds in the ABA area. Not a lot. I think three. Tell um, our listeners
0: who are new to birding, what's a code five bird?
1: Yeah. The ABA checklist, um, has all the birds that have been, uh, the, the bird species that have been seen in the ABA area at any time. Um, and, there's a code system. It's actually, the code system is actually one through six because six is extinct species. So one is like common, two is like a little um, more uncommon or has like a very particular range or something like that. But, you know, they're they're in the places where they're supposed to be. And then three is like a few are seen um, every year, uh, but that's those are hard um, to find as like a birder and then four is like not seen every year Um, maybe there'll be like one every few years and then four five excuse me five is like really really what is this bird doing here like this bird might not be um seen again for decades in the aba area uh let's see so i mean there there have been times in my life where i like really chase and like you know try to Mm. build a list and get as many lifers as possible. And there's been other times where I like, "Mm, I'm not chasing anything. And I even like, that's the time, the kind of phase that I'm in right now. Um, So um, anyway, so when I was sick, you know, I was always able to, to, to bird. And that was, that was important for, for like getting some goodness into my life during a very, very difficult time. I was very, it's so almost like you have to like poison yourself. Um, and then mm-hmm. those surgeries are quite violent too. Um, so, so it was important to have birding. And I got into one thing that happened um, during that time, especially this happened to me in 2017 is that when I was so sick and so like debilitated, I got into um, other kinds of natural history. Cause it's like, it, even just like a walk in a park could be a little bit of a strain for me when I was really taking a lot of that chemo. And so, but I realized that, you know, okay, I could like walk like in the yard or I could go on like a little walk in the neighborhood and maybe not necessarily be birding much or be birding that hard or really seeing like good birds, but I could find a lot of bugs and, you know, other invertebrates and that, you know, I really got into moths, um, hmm. which are <laughs> some birders are into mothing too. Um, it's a little different. There's many, many more species and it's the, I, you know, parts of birding can be very difficult, um, identification wise, but like mothing it's like whole nother, I mean, some of them are easy too, but it's a whole nother level. And, um, I liked mothing because I could, leave my back porch lights on and see what moths would come to me. And that was very easy for me to like, I could feel really sick and I could just see sometimes like a lot of different kinds of moths would come to the light and I could see them and I could like build my list the same way I would with birding. Um, and that was very gratifying. So I really liked that. And that was something that I gained and that I learned, um, from when I was very sick and it changed my life. Um, And so, and you know, other cool bugs come too. I like bugs a lot as well. I don't know as much about them. Um, but I, I enjoy it, um, to, to, to identify and find different kinds of insects. Um, so, so those things helped me to maintain some level of wellness, um, when I was very, uh, unwell. (laughs) So that's, that's a gift. I think that, um, That birding gives us it's something that it's always you know we're all so busy it can be really hard to find time and to make time but birding is kind of always there for us we can always do some level of birding we may not be able to travel far or chase um vagrants but we can always we can pretty much always go birding on some level or enjoy other kinds of of natural history pursuits and and i i do think that's a a key ingredient uh, to wellness. And I try to get that spirit into the magazine a little bit. Yeah.
0: Hmm. It does walk a good balance between the the bird chasers, the people who are, you know, I, I talked to, I interviewed uh, Dr. Joan Strassman, whose book Slow Birding came out recently, and she calls those folks mm-hmm. motor motor birders. And she's like, mm-hmm. and I don't begrudge them. I think it's lovely. She's like, but there are different kinds of birding. You're, and the magazine walks that balance between folks who are kind of on the hunt and chasing and folks mm-hmm. who are enjoying the birds in the backyard. And, and I do appreciate that, both about the magazine and about the practice of birding in general, that there really is something for everyone. And if, if you can get near a window or drive to a park or, you know, just notice the grackles at the grocery store, they're, they're everywhere. Mm -hmm. The birds are everywhere. And, and there's some, there's something there to, to walk with us in the, the journey of wellness. I'm so glad you're, you're well today. Sounds like it's been quite a journey.
1: Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, and a lot of birders, you know, a lot of birders like all those kinds of birding. I mean, you know, that like that like, you know, fast and furious, like sort of like, let's go, you know, let's 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 you know, let's wake up at two AM and drive five hours to be at the spot for like X good bird that's coming to feeders for like 15 minute window. Let you know, like that stuff, you know, and it's not for everybody, but like that stuff is fun too, you know, like <laughs>
0: For sure. <laughs> um, it's all fun. And, and some of it is seasons of life, right? If you're sick, that's yeah. not for you. If you have a tiny baby, that's going to be tricky. If you're finishing a PhD, right. you know, my husband right. loves to golf, but we have three young kids. And it's like, I kind of need you on Saturday, you know, like <laughs> you can go every once in a while. And so the birding can adapt to the season of life that we're in. Cause it's all good.
1: Yeah, that's right. That's right.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, Frank, you were the, the editor, you mentioned of the the book section of the birding magazine. What makes mm-hmm. a good bird book? There are so many different categories of books about birds and related to birds. What do you look for? What makes a good bird book?
1: Yeah. So (laughs) yeah, there are so many things that I could say about that. Um, well, um, so it depends what the, so, so one thing that's, that's really neat about that column Is that the the book reviews column or the reviews column? Every now and then we review things that are not books. That's something that um, Ted and I started doing when I became the reviews editor, and uh, I I got to write some cool reviews about things that weren't books. I reviewed a couple music albums once. I uh, my wife and I together reviewed um, the Wingspan franchise, which is a board game, and that was really cool. But anyway, for
0: Wingspan, love yeah yeah I.
1: I haven't played in a while. Um,
0: That's because you have an almost two-year-old.
1: Right. But like <laughs> that was, we reviewed the four different like entries in the franchise up to that moment. So there was like the classic board game, there was the European expansion. Um, there was the digital version of the classic board game. And then there was Australasia. And now I think there's Asia. and I don't know, maybe even something else. I haven't kept good track of that. Um, but uh, um, and, and, um, she's planning to do, to do more. I see she's going to do like all the, the continents except for presumably Antarctica. Elizabeth Hargrave is the, the, the person who, who invented that game. Uh, and we, we interviewed her in the magazine. Um, okay. So anyway, let's see for the reviews column, what do we look for in a bird book? Um, so it depends. So one of the, okay. What I was saying was one of the things that's, um, nice about the reviews column is that we can review really different kinds of but even though all the books must have some connection to birds and ideally birding um more specifically they can be really really different kinds of books like really different kinds of books so um you know there's a lot of non-fiction books sometimes like um, uh, collections of essays and memoirs, and then those are reviewed alongside field guides, which are actually a really different genre. Um, and you know, a lot of times there's like more technical reference books, and you know we reviewed like a philosophy book somewhat recently. There's just so many different kinds of books um, And so what makes a good book depends on what the goals of the book are and what the conventions of the genre that the book is written in. Um, and so one thing that was very fun, I'm not the reviews editor anymore. Rebecca Minardi is the, is the reviews editor and she's doing a great job. Um, but one of the things that I love to do, and sometimes I, you know, Rebecca and I coordinate on this together is picking reviewers that are well matched for the books, someone who's mm. going to be able to say something interesting about the books. That's a real joy of the, the job too. Um, and so uh, y- that's relevant to to like what makes a good book. Cause it's like you need someone who like has knowledge about the genre and about the subject matter um, and is able to express those ideas well. Um, it's got to go yeah, beyond, like,
0: I liked it. I didn't like it.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, part, part of it like, that's, good. <laughs> that's an interesting tension in the, in the column too. Sometimes I've had people ask me that question, can I write a negative review? And mm. it's like, that's kind of a tricky one to, to field. When you're a reviews, this is like a little bit of like insider, whatever, um, that maybe will be interesting for people. When you're the reviews editor, This may be, this is probably like a little less true if you're like, you know, running reviews for like a really, really big publication like the New Yorker or something. But in general, if we think a book is not good, then we don't review it. That because we only have a certain amount of slots. So we usually, most reviews are very positive, but they're not like, you could do a negative review but in general if you think a book is not good then you probably don't review it so that's why we don't often we don't have only or mostly positive reviews just because we're like you know spineless or something it's because the books that we don't think are going to be um you know the the, the best bird books we, we won't we won't run the review that's that's kind of why mm-hmm. that happens but sometimes you know we decide to review a book sometimes books are uh, really highly anticipated and they kind of like have enough weight that you kind of need to do the review and it's possible that they're not good or maybe the reviewer thinks they're not good or maybe it's like a harsh reviewer um and so um sometimes we do run reviews that could be like a little critical a lot of times like the cl- kind of the classic setup that reviewers have is they're like say a bunch of good things then the penultimate paragraph will be like all that said you know this is kind of a problem and then like the last paragraph will be like However, it's a really great book, you know, it's like, and you know, there's a, there's a reason, I don't mean to be mean about that. I mean, I've probably written reviews like that too. Um, it's kind of like flows well as a structure. So there's like a reason why you, that's how a lot of reviewers um, approach books where they, um, that had some objection, uh, to the Mm -hmm. review. I mean, what, what makes a good bird book? What makes a good bird book? A lot of it is like how it makes you feel, I think, um, Mm -hmm. Um, if you like open a book and it just makes you happy, um <laughs> I guess I'm getting kind of like condo esque about this. Like if it if you have the, the book and it just like brings you joy and it makes you happy, like a, a lot of that is what makes a, a good bird book. Mm-hmm. Um so um and there, birders love books. Mo- you know, that's not necessarily that unique to birding, like a lot of hobbyists love the books that are about their hobby, but like birders really love bird books. And I've written about this when I've done my own reviews, like birders really love, they're very devoted to the bird books. Um, uh, uh, um, And there's like a lot there, I mean, when there's like a highly anticipated bird book coming out, birders get so excited about it. It's a really cool thing about um, the hobby. And that's one cool thing about the magazine is that we do these reviews that are like, That's really like the place um, Mm. for these kind of, um, you know, people anticipate these big books and like, what are people going to say about them? Um, So I like Mm -hmm. that a lot about birding because I am a a book lover, you know, like I have an English Ph.D. program and Mm -hmm. um, books are a very important part of birding culture. So that's it's helped me in my career. And uh, it's something that I enjoy very much. I could talk about bird books forever. <laughs> I love it. I
0: love it. I have always been a book nerd before I was a bird nerd. And the fact that those mm-hmm. two things that overlap so beautifully is, is a big part of the joy for me. If I can't get out, I can read about getting out. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, what kind of bird books do you like?
0: I like all of them.
1: <laughs> yeah. 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 It's funny. One thing that's like, I mean, you could be critical about this, in you know birding culture or birding book culture there are certain types of bird books that like they get written like over and over again and they're like not even that different it's just like a different author um every few years like similar maybe even like once a year like the same kind of book comes out that's kind of can be a little tricky in the column well okay this book came out and it's got like a little bit more press behind it but we reviewed basically the same book recently (laughs) um but i mean the thing is like one thing someone told me once that really resonated with me and just sounded correct is that you can't saturate the bird book market even though very similar versions of the same books get written again and again you could say it doesn't matter like birds will buy them they're i guess they're like different enough that birds will (laughs) do it or like different people are different birds are buying it Um, uh, so birders just love books. They love having their like robust bird book libraries. And like, I'm one of the worst at that. Uh, so, (laughs) um, yeah, yeah, it's great. It's a, it's a great part of birding culture.
0: And there are new birders coming in all the time. So if Mm -hmm. someone's picking up your magazine for the very first time and they don't know that you reviewed a similar book two years ago because they're new. That's true. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I love, I love to see how much the hobby is growing. And I think it, it, the pandemic really kickstarted it, but I was talking to someone from Cornell labs and they said, you know, it's continuing. Like we thought we'd kind of see it drop off when people could go back to movie theaters and travel and things like that, Mm -hmm. but it really, it's continuing to grow. And I think that's a hopeful, hopeful sign for the birds and for the health of the planet and, and for all of us.
1: Yeah. 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 Um, Oh gosh. I was just going to say something. I had another thought about the books, but it escaped me. Oh yes. So one thing that I started, this was an innovation that I made when I was the reviews editor is you may recall in the magazine, there's the reviews of books, but there's also the bird book bulletin. Mm -hmm.
0: And that was something
1: I started doing because I wanted there to be there's so many interesting bird books that come out. Like a bird book is like, bird books rock. They're just coming out, coming out all the time. It's impossible for the reviews column to keep up with them all. Um, so, and also it's it's hard to be timely sometimes. It's hard to like get the review out fast enough because of the production process. And especially like the magazine has to compete with social media now um, in terms of that sort of like news so sometimes a bird book will come out um, and it's a highly anticipated. It doesn't matter as much if it's a little more niche or like under the radar book, but if it's like really anticipated book, there'll be a big splash on social media and then, you know, we'll set up the review and the reviewer will write the review and then we edit it and then we publish it well, as soon as we have space, but it could be like a, a lag a significant lag time. And then like, kind of like the, the, um, the focus on that book has like died down a little bit. So um, that for those reasons, I wanted to start having the bird book bulletin because I, we put like Rebecca doesn't know, but I was doing it for a while. Um, we put like every bird book that we learn about and sometimes other media too, but it's mostly, it's like 95% bird books, at least um, there. So that our members, this is like a member benefit that I wanted ABA members to have. will see what books um are coming out and i think that can be really helpful for people for a variety of ways uh in a variety of ways for instance like uh, if there's like a new uh field guide to like indonesia uh we may review it but you know we may not we can't we can't cover all of those international field guides i know a lot of our members like that and we have a few good people those are actually the hardest books to have reviewed um interesting but they're like some of the most um they're the ones a lot of our members want the most to have reviewed Mm. uh so we have to kind of it's hard to pair someone up with them that has like the right level of expertise and is able to write a good review uh and they're also they're just hard they require because you you, for a field guide review for a review you really need to do like an errata section like it has to be like these are the mistakes these are like Mm -hmm. plumage inaccuracies or like whatever you know like um
0: that's a big project uh, to undertake. Yeah,
1: so it's a, it's actually a lot of work, and so yeah. those are hard to get reviewed. But we have a few really good people, and you know there are there's other talent out there. So anyway, we don't cover mm-hmm. all of those field guides that are coming out all of the time, but I can get them in the um, in the bulletin. And so if there's someone who really loves birding in Indonesia mm-hmm. and or whatever. Um, they will see that the book is coming out and so they can investigate it further. So that's something that I added that I really like. And Rebecca did something really cool with the column since she took it over the, the bulletin specifically is she started having a little, like it may not be in every issue but she started having like a little subsection of the column, which is specifically about bird books for kids. Maybe you've seen that. So mm-hmm. for I for love parents that. like yourself, like parent,
0: that's a gift. Yeah, that's the yeah. Great gift.
1: And I think that can be nice for people like when they maybe people that aren't parents who like have um, family members, especially around the holidays. They you know yeah. they want to do the thing where they like try to indoctrinate their family members, their like nieces and nephews or whatever.
0: You got invited to a birthday party. This can is see. where you shop. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I I think that's really nice thing that she started doing is to like because I, I would get them in there, but I didn't, I didn't, I never had the thought to um and there's so there's so there's so many bird books that come out for kids too. Um mm-hmm. so I, I didn't have the thought to like separate them and separate them. And that's something that Rebecca started doing that I think is great. So it's all fun. That's so much fun to do that stuff and to like keep track of that stuff.
0: Yeah. I look through that section before my birthday and before holidays and circle things and just hand it to my oh, husband good. and I'm like, here, here, this is good. go to, go to the bookstore. This is my plan. I, uh, I've written a few books in, in religious spaces. I'm i I'm a pastor and I write in kind of religious spaces, but my, my book that's going to come out in January, February of 2024 is about birds and, and hope and faith. But I. I was working with my agent to pitch this book and he was like, Courtney, nobody wants this. And I said, no, 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 Hmm. you're just not a birder. Like Hmm. you don't know, you don't know how many birders love to read books and, and he, and he, I I, like, it's in my heart. I have to write it. I'm going to write it. And we got a couple of calls with publishers and the first call, this wonderful woman at the publisher just talked to me about warblers for 15 minutes. And my, and my agent is on the call and he's just, he's just silent. And when she, she goes off the call and he goes, I need to apologize. I had no idea there were other people like you out there in the world. Like, we'll write your burning book. Go write your burning book. And
1: That's it's awesome. been
0: so much fun to just discover this world of, you know, I'm not the only one. Like, Yeah,
1: you you knew it. I think it sounds like you nailed it. So Okay, so what's the title? Do you know what the title of your book is? Uh, so
0: we're still in the working title phase of it. But okay, it's okay. going to be something related to, to looking up. There was a death in my family and how I walked gotcha. with different... Species of birds and getting into birding and grief and hope, but also the the faith piece. Cause I'm a pastor and I write from a a, a spiritual perspective right. on the meaning of birds and how they connect to to faith and kind of the deeper questions of life. So uh coming out in January or February, we're still working on the title. Um
1: that's great. Well, that sounds wonderful. Congratulations. It's very exciting.
0: Thanks. It's it was it was the first book out of all the books I've written that I had to write you know you get kind of that burning fire wow. and you just got to write the thing the other ones were were fun wow. and and fascinating and enjoyable and i you know i i believe in them but this this one was this one was something different the birds have gotten to me frank the birds are yeah. Birds are are deep They're relentless. in the heart, deep in the soul. <laughs> they are, they are. Uh, and I'm grateful <laughs> to them for that. So I, I love that that books section is one of my favorite sections besides the stickers. The stickers really, I don't know why the stickers gave me such joy. I love the stickers. The belted Kingfisher yeah. sticker. It's on my laptop right now. Um, but I want to ask as we make the turn to to closing the podcast today, what is mm-hmm. your favorite
1: bird? <laughs> uh let's see so I am one of those birders who struggles with that question today
0: <laughs> what is your favorite bird I today?
1: Like, <laughs> I love golden-winged warblers um so I'm gonna go with uh golden-winged warbler it's my favorite warbler and I am a warbler guy um so um I like the you know birders gravitate towards different different kinds of, of, of birds. Uh, not, not always. I mean, a lot of birders, you know, the, every bird is exciting. Um, you know, every potential lifer is very exciting. I I like the little birds. Um, you know, some people are like really, really into raptors or really, really into like, uh, like pelagic birds or like sea watching and stuff. I, I do like the, the little migrants especially. Um, and, and Pittsburgh is good for that. Um, so, so golden winged warbler is my, it's my favorite warbler. It's, it's my favorite bird. Um, I've had some really nice experiences with uh golden winged warbler. I wrote about this on the ABA website at some point. Um, it was a bird that um, the first time I, so that's, that's a bird of like conservation concern as, as, as some people, I'm sure some listeners know and, um, people will be interested to to learn about um, because they have like a hybrid hybridization risk with a blue-winged warbler and um, they're very beautiful they're very striking um, they they are kind of like they used to breed here in like the Pittsburgh area but they they've kind of like disappeared from here you can have it as a as a migrant but it's 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 pretty uncommon um, then maybe there'd be like one or two in per spring that people find and you're able to to get it Um, but they do still hang on i believe in the central part of the state there's some breeding birds and so i traveled there to go um try to get my lifer and i had like a really exciting experience where um i looked all day and i couldn't have it and then finally i i heard um this song which is similar to the blue wing song and sometimes they do each other's song so i needed to see it and um um, it was like dusk and we had to leave soon cause we had to drive back like three hours in the dark. Uh, and, but then I, I like, it was like kind of like a row of hedges almost. And the bird was like, I saw the bird. I was Oh, there it is. And, uh, you know, that was so exciting just by itself, but it kept coming toward me, um, the golden winged warbler. Mm. And it was like hopping toward me, which is like kind of an unusual behavior. And then it like stopped like almost right in front of me. Like I had a big, um, um, zoom lens on like a telephoto lens. And I was trying to take the photos, but I had to like back up because it was so close to me. It was just kind of like there and it was like in the bushes and I got some really nice photos Mm -hmm. and I was like, so it was just such a great experience. I was with my, um, um, wife and, and then we started walking back to the car and I was like looking in the, the viewfinder and I was looking at the, the photos of the golden wings. And I was like, there's look at this, there's like another bird here. And it was the reason it had, the bird had come close to me is because it had um, food in its mouth. It had a couple caterpillars that it had caught and it was bringing the food to its recently fledged chick that was outside of the nest. But I hadn't even seen the chick when I was right next to it. It was so camouflaged and it fed the chick like right in front of me and I didn't see it. And then in the photo I could see, oh, there's a chick. And um, I also saw, it was a very dramatic experience because the the female came too, mm. and the female was a blue-winged warbler. So this was a hybrid baby
0: oh. bird,
1: which is like, that's like part of the big conservation story with this bird. Um, and so I, we walked back, and I looked where we were. I tried to figure out where we had been standing, and eventually I saw the chick right there. Mm. Um, and it was just like, wow, like I had been standing right next to this chick uh and i didn't even see it this it fledging it was like recently fledged yeah. um and it was you know so that was just an incredible experience and i've had other really great experiences with that bird i when my wife and i um we did our honeymoon uh in costa rica and i saw one um like just like in the rainforest because mm. in they passed through um costa rica in march uh and uh uh, in because that's like you know they're early that's like when my migration is good in costa rica because it's like earlier mm. of course and so i was like in the rainforest that bird i didn't see it that well uh it was like right it was like the first day of our honeymoon mm. and i was seeing really cool you know rainforest birds and then um uh i saw the goal I, I saw a bird it's like oh what is this is it like a granulate or whatever you know like i didn't but then i was like oh wow it's like a golden wing warbler amazing and so mm-hmm. that was very exciting there was another time in Miami Dade, this is like uh that's so I was with um I was this was in 2014. In 2014, when I was having all that chemo, uh I lived with my parents. Um, and uh I was so sick one day. I was feeling really awful from the chemo. And my mom calls me outside. Uh she's like, um, Oh, there's an Oriole outside. And I was like, I was pretty sure it was an American Red Star, which is a fairly common bird um, in, 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 in Miami Dade, uh, in the right time of year. And so I went outside and it was a red star, but there was a mixed flock of other warblers, and it was like yellow romped and um, you know, palm and stuff like that, and black and white. And then I saw one. I didn't have, I didn't take my bins out. And I really must emphasize that I felt very bad. <laughs> All of a sudden I saw a bird and I was like, I think that's a golden winged warbler, which is a really, really good bird for Miami Day that's they pass through, but that's a really hard one to get there mm. um and I w- went back inside and I got the bins and I got the camera, and I it was a golden winged and I was very, very excited, so it was like really made that day memorable and good. And it was not a good day that I probably would have forgotten if it wasn't for, you know, my mom calling me out to see the Oriole. Um, So I just had a lot of great experiences um, with that species. So that's my my favorite bird.
0: Those stories are (laughs) magic.
1: That stuff happens all the time in birding. That's why people love birding. There's always those little magical discoveries that people make, you know, people love finding a lifer. That's like a very concrete sort of like measurable thing that you can do, but, um, there's other kinds of smaller discoveries like that, um, that people are constantly making in birding. That's part of what makes birding so addictive and fun. And, um, yeah, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> absolutely
0: i have not yet seen a golden wing warbler so the first time i see one i will i will think of you and birding magazine and all of the all of the the magic that it brings frank how can our listeners connect with you where can they find the magazine how can they how can they follow your exploits you're a delight on social media
1: oh thank you <laughs> thank you okay um so the birding magazine is the flagship publication of the american birding association you can go to aba.org and you can join the aba and then you will receive birding magazine eight times a year Um, three of those issues are edited by me and three by ted and two special issues by michael redder ted floyd and michael redder and um, and it's a really great magazine i'm very proud of the work that i do and i hope all ABA members enjoy it. And I always welcome feedback on the magazine. That's something that I very, very much appreciate. Um, so I invite people who are not members to um, join the organization and receive the magazine. Uh, and let me know what you think about it. Um, that means a lot to me. And uh, let's see. In terms of me specifically, my Twitter, my my social media handles are usually bird is life. So it's, you know, bird, B-I-R-D, and then it's is I-Z, like my last name is Gary, and then L-I-F-E. So you can follow me. I'm most active on Twitter. I'm also on Instagram. Um, And so, yeah, those are the ways to connect with me.
0: Perfect. I'll link to all that in the show notes. And I, I just, I encourage everyone to check out the ABA, whether or not you subscribe, they do wonderful work. They have a great code of birding ethics that if you're just getting started in birding, it's a really great thing to read and think about respecting habitats and, you know, not encroaching on birds that are endangered and giving them their space and things like that, that when I was brand new, I thought, oh, I should know this. Like I I hadn't thought this through, but this is, this is very helpful. They do wonderful work. Frank, thank you so much for the gift of your time. You are, you have a lot of balls in the air and I, I appreciate that you gave us the gift of this hour.
1: Well, thank you so much, Courtney. It was really a joy to be on the show and I wish you you know much success with the book um, and all your other projects. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it and I'm honored.
0: the thing with feathers is produced by me, Courtney Ellis. Many thanks to Dell Belcher for the music to Todd Peterson for the name inspiration and to Emily Dickinson for the beautiful poem and for being in the public domain until next time, my friends keep looking up.
1: Your soul. Yes, it does.